Greetings, everybody. I'd like to welcome you all to uh, the Dharma Warrior podcast, episode two. I am quite delighted to have my uh, dear friend, uh, Mr. Harry Neil John McRae with us today. Uh, And he is uh, the person behind the... um, the name Iron Age Jyotish, if you have encountered that online, uh, he's been working professionally as a Vedic astrologer. And uh, I'm quite happy to have him here today. I can't think of a better second guest to have on the podcast. Um, And today we're going to be uh, discussing uh, the mysteries of Jyotish, the planets. It's going to be the first installment on our uh, Mysteries of Jodish series, so I'm quite happy to uh, be kicking that off today, and I guess I'll let Neil John take it from here and give us a little introduction on the subject of the planets or the Navagrahas. Yeah, so essentially what the Navagrahas are, like um, I should say more specifically too, that like the, the actual name if you break it down in Sanskrit, like Nava means nine, Graha means um, to hold or to seize um, or to keep, so, or capture. So essentially what it's saying, when we call the planets the Nava Grahas, what we're actually effectively doing is recognizing them as the nine holders, the nine grabbers or pullers or seizers. So what that actually tells us is that they're not just, um, you know, these, these predetermining sort of uh, inflexible um, sort of indicators of like fate. Like it's not, it's not like it, when we're talking about astrology and Jewish, we're not actually talking about um, what is inescapable, what is like written in stone. We're talking about what is being pulled into moved and, influenced to be so we're talking about what is likely probable um we're talking about like gravity essentially like what's actually pulling on our lives and the reality around us not what's ordaining reality because like there's because there's a very important difference there because we, we can't say that oh yeah like jodish is this very valuable science we should all learn and then you tell the person that learning it will do nothing because everything is already predetermined and you can't do anything about it. And all you're really doing is getting to look at what will happen to you. Like that's not really useful. And it it wouldn't make any sense that anyone would have put any time into studying it if that was the case, because it would have done, you know, would have been basically just an act of uh, almost theistic fatalism. It's just no good. So instead um, what we're actually talking about is a science of understanding fate and karma and um, really just the narratives of our lives as these things that in, in a state of ignorance are predetermined, are preordained, are inescapable. But once we begin to learn and to understand the science of Jodish, then we can actually learn to kind of, you know, overcome the gravity of these things to kind of move against the current 
and to reorient ourselves. So, you know, so, and that's not to say either that these things are incredibly powerful and that you're just by, you know, knowing that this exists, you can overcome anything, but that you're going to do better than you were doing before. Like, you know, if you take like a planet like Saturn, which has an extremely powerful, powerful effect on our world, you're going to have a really hard time avoiding what's coming, but you can mitigate the, the circumstances that, it, that it's going to produce. So there, there is a value in finding out, you know, in that example of what your Saturn placement is actually going to do and how it um, affects you. So it's not like, it's not a fatalistic science. That's like probably the most important thing to remember is that we're not learning this to scare ourselves. We're learning it to prepare ourselves. The other thing that I think is really important when we're talking about the planets is because of the nature of Western astrology and it's, um, it's essentially being kind of commingled and um, almost like inescapably intertwined at this point with uh, new age um, religion and philosophy and ideas. There's this like sort of pseudoscientific like idea about what um, planets are doing in astrology. And I say pseudoscientific in two, two senses. One in the sense that it's pseudoscientific in relation to um, the, the scientific method as practiced by Western scientists proper in this day and age, and it's pseudoscientific in relation to the science of Jodish as a Vedic discipline, um, or astrology as a spiritual discipline, because it's kind of taking the worst part from each camp. So um, in Western astrology, generally, the physical planets are actually seen as the, um, the cause or the, the, the source or the origin of the effects that are being experienced by the person um, who's looking at their chart and like seeing what these things are like, Oh, Saturn and, and Mars or whatever are doing this to me. And they're thinking of the physical body itself in the sky. In reality, um, that's not what's happening. You know what I mean? Like, and, and, and from the other end, um, they are not just doing that, but they're, they're also saying that the effect is at once something sort of physical or um, it has some kind of pull on you that is like, a, a, like sort of like a hidden material phenomenon or like an energy or something. And yet the scientific Western canon completely evinces this opinion, like it, it, it eviscerates it, like it clearly shows that doesn't make any sense. There's no way that the gravitational pull or the frequency or any of that mumbo jumbo of a planet is doing anything to you and your body in any causal way. And um, to be perfectly honest, this is also the opinion of a classic Vedic astrologer because what's actually happening is the planet is not doing anything to you. What's actually happening is there is a deific, a, a deity who is only physically represented by the planet. The planet is a metaphor for their existence. It's a placeholder. It's like a, um, almost like a, like a symbol, but recast in the material realm where it can be experienced as what we would see as a planet. And so as the planet moves, we move accordingly. 
to, to see the movements of the planets is really to just witness the movements of human beings and events in the world. They're reflections of one another. They don't cause one another. They're both being moved and brought into um, alignment by a higher force, which is these deities that the planets are named for. Those are the actual movers and shakers in Jodish. The planets are indications. It's like a, it's like a machine or a device that we're using to understand, interpret, and um, almost kind of like just, we're just trying to turn it into something that we can actually like talk about and explain and break down into smaller parts for analysis and application. So that's really what Jodish is all about is you're trying to take this very complex idea of what are the gods doing and how do they affect my day-to-day -day life and who I am and what I am. Um, and you're systematizing it according to something else that is also under their direct influence. And in fact, um, moves according to their influence in a far more precise and kind of clock-like way. The planets do not deviate from their course in the way that we can. That's the point. Like we're looking at like the standard essentially, like what is the baseline for what can happen? Like what's the archetypal image of a given event? And from that, we can pull all these different possible variations on that event. You know what I mean? We can look at like a particular configuration of planets, signs, all these different things and say, this can produce these events. Right. And then you kind of you narrow it down to this sort of cloud of possibility. Right. But that's what Jodish deals in. And that's kind of really what it's a study of uh, generally. And so when we talk about the planets, it's so crucial to not think of them as the physical bodies that we're tracking the movements of. You have to think of them as something more uh, metaphysical. Right. So the, the Navagrahas are metaphysical deific forces in, that are active in every single level of our lives, as opposed to um, just these rocks in space. Um, and that's why, I'll, I'll, once again, I also think it's so important that we try and, you know, um, rehabilitate astrology in our mind and kind of like not, not, not allow everything we basically learned about it throughout our lives in this part of the world to influence how we understand and see it and what we think it is. Okay. So, <clears throat> all right. And saying that, um, I guess, I should point out that my understanding of Jodish has been heavily filtered through you, Mr. Neil John, and also um, that I did find uh, pretty much immediately after I was introduced to it, or reintroduced to it by you, I had heard of it before and not really looked very deeply into it, and then say about a year and a half ago you gave me my chart and I started looking into the different aspects of uh, the planets and the nakshatras that they were in when I was born and really 
I found that it resonated with me on a much deeper level than Western astrology. And I was kind of blown away by how accurate and precise some of it was. And um, so I found that interesting because, uh, you know, having an interest in the mysteries, Eastern and Western, of all types throughout my life, it is kind of funny that I never felt particularly pulled to astrology, but then I do find that I am quite pulled to Jodish, and the more that I learn of it, the more that uh, is reaffirmed of what I know, and I do see uh, truth reflected in a lot of and truth uh, in a lot of the ideas behind um, sort of planetary placements and their t- what that typically might mean of a person if that's in their natal chart or what have you. Um, but anyway, um, recently, I guess we've been talking a lot just about the nature of Jodish in general and the history. And I guess there are a couple things that uh, we meant to touch upon that were just sort of um, fundamental to the foundation of the practice itself before we get into the individual planets or navgrahas. Um, And I guess I'll sort of let you take it from there. We were speaking about uh, sort of a time around I believe it was 150 CE, I can't remember at the moment, Um, but it was uh, around the time that um, the Greco-Roman teachings uh, of astrology sort of blended with those of uh, Jodish, and um, I guess I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, so basically what happens there is that... um, we don't really have written record of Jodish existing at all until about a thousand BCE, right? So roughly 3000 years ago is when the first records of any kind of like science of mysticism um, based on the observation of the firmament um, appears. So we, it just, you don't see that in the historical record and the literary record until about 3000 years ago, roughly. Um, there is an Upanishad, I believe, that um, mentions um, using celestial measurements to um, and observations to ordain um, different ritual days and determine when certain rites and sacrifices ought to be made. There's no mention of the planets, the stars, any actual phenomena that are being measured. It's just recorded that these things that that something in the sky is being looked at and looked to rather for information about what should be done and when. Um, and then it's not really for another thousand, about 1100 years roughly that the Greeks come into contact with um, Indian civilization. And when this happens, you have um, Jodish, which was up until that point, a lunar oriented system. So it's not so much that the sun was not figured into their observations. 
It was more so that it wasn't um, the primary point of, um, of orientation. So the uh, zodiac was actually split up into a lunar cycle of 27 to 28 days and therefore 27 to 28 corresponding signs. Um, one of these signs was eventually dropped. It was called Abhijit and uh, it's basically it was this um, this kind of like almost a placeholder really for just kind of like this, these leftover degrees. Um, and they ended up just sort of subsuming its stars into these other signs that were adjacent to it. And then it became a, a more equally distributed, in fact, a very precisely equally distributed um, system of 27 signs or lunar mansions called nakshatras. Now, so when this system, which is lunar, comes in contact with the solar system of uh, the Greco-Roman astrological tradition as brought to them um, through Alexandrian contact, um, what you actually have is um, this, rather than the systems rejecting each other, um, they actually um, unify. And we actually have literary record of that. There is a text called the Yavana Jataka, which um, was written sometime around 150 CE, so in the Common Era, um, 150, 150 years into the Common Era. And that's basically when you kind of see that um, what they wanted to do when, when these systems interacted with the, what they thought was the wisest thing to do was actually trying to figure out how they um, worked together and um, how they actually were a better tool for describing things when we're used in conjunction rather than separately. So what they did was, is they adopt the 12, the 12 sign and 12 house system of the solar Western uh, astrological tradition, and they combine it with the lunar system. Um, now at this time, the Greeks had actually very recently stopped um, uh, calculating the procession of the equinoxes, um, at least in, in so far as they thought it would be relevant to determining the positions of the signs. They actually affixed them to um, specific dates. And basically it was set up so that zero degrees of Aries would always be on the, um, the exact beginning, like the, the exact moment of the vernal equinox. And so the entire zodiac was sort of fixed in that position um, in the minds of astrologers, even though the, the actual physical stars and the uh, planets, everything continued to shift and move after that point. So the Greeks had already abandoned this sort of system of adjusting um, uh, the, the zodiac to, to fit the procession of the equinoxes. And what, uh, what ends up happening is, is that they basically take the, the, the Vedic astrologers basically take this system of 12 zodiac signs, which better sort of um, approximates the movements of the sun, and they just combine it with theirs and they, and, and they end up act, and they, but applying this calculation to it. So in Jodish, what, what the calculations that, are, that uh, account for this procession of the equinoxes are called Ayanamsha. And so 
they take this Greek system, they bring it back to life, and it is combined with the nakshatra system. So you would see the, uh, the 27 nakshatras and the 12 zodiac signs overlaid on top of each other in the natal chart. And they're used together to understand placements, right? Um, and we can actually discern quite a bit about both nakshatras and the zodiac signs, which in Jyotish are called Rashi, by looking at the relationship with one another. So we can actually find things out about, say, a given nakshatra based on what sign it's a part of um, and vice versa. So the, the two systems end up in, ended up informing each other. And um, after that, there's a large amount of literary development in the field. So lots of books start to be written. Um, there is actually a sort of a concentrated effort now to deeply systematize and expand upon the system. And you just see a level of focus and energy being put into it, at least in terms of it being written down as in terms of being a literary tradition and that period. So around 150 CE onward, you see this sort of explosion, which really peaks in the medieval, in the medieval era um, of just Jodish related literature. So, that's where most of what we're dealing with today in terms of Jodish comes from. And even more recently than that, Jodish was kind of resurrected. Um, it had become sort of unpopular um, and kind of fell out of use, not entirely, but it just you know, declined um, sometime around, and I would imagine during the occupation by the British Empire of India. And since they've regained independence, there has been a steady um, sort of recovery in that sense, and that, and that science has reestablished itself and in fact is taught in universities in India. It is a recognized discipline, like it's not considered to be um, superstitious or unreal or um, it, 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 it's, it's given a significance and a dignity that doesn't really exist in the West. That's not to say, that's not to say there's no critics um, of Jodish in the Eastern world. There are plenty of skeptics. There are people who protest and advocate against its teaching, use, and uh, promulgation in any way, shape, or form. But it, it, it has a dignity there that just simply does not exist in the West, if you look at its correlate here. Like Western astrology has zero respect in, in the West, and for good reason. It's it, it, a lot of the things that make astrology accurate and um, useful are simply absent in the system that has sort of survived here. It, it no longer serves any kind of purpose uh, in terms of like actually being able to do anything predictive or um, help people with uh, their religious life, which is what Jodish is intended for. Um, now it's almost taken on kind of like a psychoanalytic sort of post-Jungian neo or I should say new age character. So um, it's really just a thing that's mocked, right? So Jodish is not only as it is it a preserved sort of, um, you know, uh, like not only is it like a fully fleshed out discipline and we have this large literary tradition to back it up and to uh, inform our understanding of it, but 
it, it also has respect where it is still currently practiced um, and where, you know, in, in its place of origin. And so it's just a much better system to involve yourself with. If you want to get something out of astrology, it's really what you want to be looking at is a system that has history, um, an almost unbroken line of praxis and transmission and initiation. And um, it has accuracy. Like we can, you can do things with it that will prove beyond a reasonable doubt that it is real. It's not something that has to be debated about. It's not so vague that we can have this discussion about whether or not it had a predictive ability or, qual or qualities or, you know, it can be shown. And that's really what's so valuable about it is that it's one thing for me to read my own chart and identify with it. It's not a difficult thing to achieve. Um, you can do that with anything. You know what I mean? If you tell someone beforehand, if you read this thing that you're about to read, you will find that it is a description of you. People are very good at finding mirrors, you know what I mean, wherever they look. So that's not all that impressive. What's more impressive is when you take, say, something like film and you can use Jodish to demonstrate very consistent patterns in casting, themes, all sorts of things in film over long periods of time and no one in that industry has any knowledge of the thing at all. So it's not, you know what I mean? It's this thing that's very readily established as real. And that's kind of like one of the major things I like to, like I, I focus on, on um, with, you know, in Iron Age Jodish. And it's one of the major things I like to focus on when I'm doing charts. I want like specific information for my clients. I want to like show people things that are real, that are like, you know, pinpointing things in their life. Like I want to show them that it's not just like a fun thing to, to, to know or to think about or to do. It's actually like really showing me something I can only know by looking at the chart. You know what I mean? If I don't know that person, if I have no contact with them, like, because otherwise, everything, all the advice that you give a person based on the chart will be worthless. They'll know, they'll, they will not take it seriously because there's no reason to, because it's all theoretical. You know what I mean? Unless you can be like, something, unless you have something concrete, you can be like, well, I know this, and how else would I know it? No one has any reason to believe what you're saying. So Jodish can only survive and be taken seriously on its practical merits. And that's why I think it has survived for such a long time and why it's, it has, it is yet to kind of undergo the humiliation that Western astrology has. Yeah, it's really uh, interesting. Um, and we were talking a lot about Jodish as more than just a Indian concept, I guess. And yeah. Um, I guess we got into a lot of different aspects of it in our discussions over the last few days, but, um, was there anything else that you wanted to, um, talk about before we get into the individual planets or Navgrahas? Um, yes. Um, one thing I would like to mention 
is we've I've talked a little bit about the procession of the equinoxes and the Ayanamsha. I've mentioned this, this, this calculation uh, that's used to adjust the position of the, the zodiac in, rel in relation to the, uh, you know, the earth and all these other, you know, and, and the planets. Um, but the, the impact of that is so much bigger than perhaps some people may realize. The Western system, because it is fixed, you think to yourself, okay, well, how much of a deviation could there be? Um, in the last 2,000 years, the Western zodiac has remained in place, and the actual zodiac has moved back counterclockwise a whole 23 degrees. So that's a little more than a degree a century. And what that effect that has is you're almost a full sign away from where you actually are. You know what I mean? Like if you're using Western astrology, you're almost a full sign off. You have a seven degree window where you might be in the same place. And once again, if you look at Jodish, seven degrees is a lot of space. The seven degree difference is a humongous difference. That, that's the, all the difference in the world. Like, you know, a Leo who's in the, the, the first portion of Leo as opposed to the last is a very different kind of Leo. Mm -hmm. very different so seven degrees like is is a lot 23 degrees is a lot so like i mean if you are going around and you're identifying as a cancer or as a scorpio or as a gemini anything like that and it's because of your western um your western sign like you're you've you've that's where you've got this information from that's why you think that it is incorrect like I can't like I mean I, I I people kind of try to pussyfoot around it and they like they like to be polite but it's it, it's just factually incorrect it is not what's going on and your attachment to that could be probably quite easily explained if you looked at your chart your moon might be there the ascendant might be in this place or perhaps there's a planetary dominant that has a similar energy to the sign that you identify with but like you, one thing you're going to have to do is let go of your Western sign and understand that it is a meaningless thing you've glommed onto. It, like it, it, it has no value and it needs to be, you just need to, you know, just, just cut it out. Like, you know what I mean? It's yeah. so good. For me, um, I was born basically in the western system i'm born in the last few degrees of cancer just a few days before yeah. the cusp of leo and i am still i guess in cancer but i am in the very first few degrees of cancer yes. after the uh system of jodish so that even though I am still within that uh, that same sun or that same Rashi within the system of Jodish, it I would be in an entirely different nakshatra. Which, Correct. as far as my sun placement and um, and then it would, <clears throat> so that would 
essentially have uh, could potentially have a lot of different implications on oh, that 100% does because the difference between the first degrees of cancer which are pernivasu and the final degrees which are in a nakshatra called ashalasha are that are so it's very dramatic because one of these nakshatras is the entrance into the sign it because we have to think about the sign as a story like like cancer is a story it is a narrative it is a whole archetypal event and so the first nakshatra the middle nakshatra and the last nakshatra of the sign are different chapters there they have very different meanings and symbolism and although they share this sort of uh, communal water, this sort of um, this relationship with one another. They are not the same thing and they have dramatically different um, effects on a person. Like, so if you're like Jupiter, which was what Pernavisu is ruled by, if Jupiter is influencing your personality as opposed to the, the following nakshatra's ruler, which is Saturn, that's a huge difference. The, the, the things that Jupiter and Saturn do to a person are so radically opposing that to say that they were the same or that like it's a it just it just shows you how meaningless it is to, to say that someone is a cancer in terms of like giving you anything remotely specific like mm -hmm. a cancer is just so general there's so many things that it deals with you if you can't narrow that down at all it's kind of like just you know it's just this big kind of ambiguous mess that's kind of hard to you know and navigate off of it in the western system it's off by 23 degrees so yeah. so it's not only saying this is vaguely where the sun is within 30 degrees <laughs> out of a 360 degree circle of the year but it's also off by 23 degrees so yeah even if it was giving you any accurate information, it would be accurate information that's 2,000 years uh, old, yeah. Um, obsolete. Yeah, it's ancient, useless information. Um, the Greeks were probably doing okay for a little while. That first 100 years is probably fine. You get you get beyond that, and you're getting to that like full degree, like you know, a few full degree away. Mm -hmm. Things start to get a little sloppy. And it just gets progressively worse. And you can even watch in the historical record dependence on and reliance on astrologers declining the further into the into time you go. And people will say that's because, oh, well, we, you know, we learned that this doesn't make any sense, and people, the enlightenment and all this stuff happened where we we abandoned astrology. But in India, this never happened that reliance on and trusting astrologers never went away. It was just a constant until, coincidentally, the, the British, who would technically, after some fashion, be the inheritors of a failed Western science of astrology, um, as in no longer practicing and only vaguely culturally aware of it um, as sort of like an antiquity or cultural antiquity, like when these people basically came in contact with, with India, that's when this tradition is interrupted, not before. And in, and afterwards it is completely recovered, completely recovered. You can make a living in, um, in India 
being an astrologer. It is, it is a respectable profession. You're not a huckster or a charlatan. You're, it's, it's a profession. It's, like, it's, it's considered to be a respectable thing to do for money. So, you know, I just want to, but like I said, just, just going into this, like I really want people to understand that I am not putting forward that Jyotish is like optional in that sense. I kind of want to be really like forceful with this because it, it, the pushback that you get from telling people that they're not a Leo or whatever, especially Leos, that people who think that they're Leo, they don't like finding out through cancer. It's like one of those things. And like everyone else kind of goes, Oh, okay. But if you tell someone who's a cancer that they were a Leo, Oh, they don't, it's just the opposite. If you tell someone who's uh, thinks they're a Leo, they're a cancer. They don't like that at all. It's like a big slap in the face. So I just want everyone to understand that like, I'm not saying that like Jodish is something you can try or that it's some kind of, uh, it's like an option or it's a flavor of astrology. It is astrology. If you're not doing something with Anayanamsha, you're not doing astrology, you're doing something else. And it, it, it's bogus. It's like homeopathy. You got to give it up, like, you know. <laughs> okay, so... Uh... So on top of that, um, we've established that basically within Jyotish, it's important to look at the planets, not so much as the forces or the essences behind the effects that are experienced in the human, I guess, the charter that we're looking at. Um, it, it, we're more so looking at the um, the movements of a, a deeper force that is manifesting itself both in the planets and within our lives and within yes. everything in nature. And this has, uh, through the years, been <clears throat> boiled down to a science. And I... It is quite fascinating to me to when you start looking at the commonalities between people who are born with uh, similar planetary placements, such as their sun sign or moon sign, uh, or these things that the planets that have uh, that tend to have uh, or not the planets that have an influence on the person's life, but you know what I mean. The planets that tend mm. to signify a, a, a more uh, prominent aspect of the person's personality um, such as the ascendant or the sun sign or moon sign um, that you really do see these similarities in the person's looks and in their personality and and I certainly found with the few charts that you have sort of broken down for me on different uh, people in my life or different uh, prominent, say, gurus or magical instructors and things like that. Um, I've, I've found them to be incredibly accurate and uh, to give great insight into both the nature of those people and the nature of Jodish as a science. 
Um, so I guess uh, some of the most interesting aspects of um, the planets in Jodish that we've been discussing recently to me are um, just the way that these planets both within Jodish and uh, within other systems, whether it's classic astrology or Western astrology um, and different mythologies and different cultures, uh, it's interesting that these planets take on a very similar meaning, even if the astrological system is entirely kind of off or different. Um, you still see Mars being a very war-like planet, and you see uh, Saturn particularly inherits uh, sort of malicious or not so good reputation uh, in cultures all over the world. And uh, I just found it interesting that um, I guess Jodish sort of provides a bit more information on why that is. Because once you start looking into a system where that lines up with a logical, not even zodiacal system, but the nakshatra system I found particularly insightful or particularly intuitive, I guess I should say, as a system. Um, and yeah, did you want to say anything about, I guess, just the nature of the way that the planets are depicted in Jodish versus traditional or Western mythology uh, because they are sort of yeah. in a way similar in that they're both meant to be a sort of physical representation of a, a, of a deity often accor according to different cultures. Um, did you want to say anything about that? Yeah, so there are so there are all these commonalities, right? Like the the sun is probably the most obvious example of a of a of a of one of the Navagrahas that basically doesn't change at all in in either system. It's it's got the exact same characteristics. It's about regality, authority, morality, truth. It's sort of seen as the summation of all the other planets, except for Rahu and Ketu. We'll get into that later, what those are, why that is. But um, the sun is really just right down the middle of the same. Deals with the state, um, deals with the father, deals with um, masculine energy in its most distilled and pure form. Like it, it is what masculinity proceeds from. Mars is a big part of that as well, but the sun is like, that's the, the source of that. Um, and it ha that's essentially the, like the big thing you see kind of being the same in both of these systems. Now, one thing I will say is that in the Vedic tradition, the sun also has a female counterpart, 
which is also still the sun. So there is a, um, a female version of the sun. Um, but it's very important that when we, we talk about that, what we're, what we're actually not really describing are two, different, two separate things altogether. Like all the grahas are both male and female, you know, um, husband and wife, like they all contain a refraction of the, of gendered consciousness. Um, so there is no, like, you know what I mean? Like we, we are going to attribute certain gender qualities or sexuality or, or a certain polarity to planets, but within that polarity, there is another sort of polarity. There's, there's sort of these, uh, these deeper kind of divisions that we can find and then apply to people, for example. Like we're, we, talk, we can talk about a woman who has solar qualities while still being very much a woman and feminine, e even by other people's standards. So we, we, we can talk about how the, the planets both can have a sort of um, a very specific sort of sex gender kind of um, uh, manifestation or um, consciousness, but still have application to both men and women, and, and it can be, and, and once again, there's, there's just different levels to that. And once again, like gender in this system plays a very large role. It's um, like the planets affect men and women very differently. Um, planetary uh, dominance, like rulership over personality. Oh, just keep going. I'm just letting yeah. the dog out of the room. They affect um, men and women very differently. So yeah. But like anyway, back to, back to where I where I was. So the sun, like I said, is pretty much straightforward. The same in both systems. Um, now you can also look at a planet like the moon, and there's a bit of a difference in when you start looking at the moon. So in the Western system, the moon is not just seen as the mind; it's also seen as sort of ruling over emotions. And it's seen as um, less important um, in, in terms of understanding how um, the personality of a person works. So in the Western system, we look to the sun to determine what a person is like, you know, what they act like, how they think. Um, and whereas in Jodish, we actually look at the moon first. The moon is, has a much more noticeable and immediate effect on a person's personality and their behavior and their outlook than the sun. And um, that, so that's sort of a deviation, right? Um, in between the two systems. And the other thing is, is that in, in India, uh, the moon is primarily seen as male, as opposed to the female um, designation that it receives in the West. However, in Jodish and in the Western system, the moon is usually representative of the mother in the chart. In either in either case, so you know what I mean. Like there's there's more always more in common. There's always more similarities than there are differences. But there are some differences, and most of them I attribute honestly to simply the, the Western system um, lacking a um, a proper lunar mansion system. I mean, in fact, interestingly enough, there are some very obscure and tenuous references to a lunar mansion or 27 sign 
moon-based astro astrological system existing in pre-Christian uh, uh, Druidic um, Celtic Europe. So some scholars, based on some very minimal sources, believe that the Celts may have practiced a system which had 27 signs and was based on the movements of the moon. Now, there's, it's almost impossible to confirm that. We don't know anything about what that system would have been like, but there is some very, you know, like I said, tenuous evidence that they may have existed. And so whatever was in, if the West ever had this information, which technically it should have, is, is it ultimately the West is a, is a product of the Vedic East, but um, after a fashion, but the uh when we i don't know when we lost it but we by the time of the of the alexandrian conquest of india it had been lost and um, even after that contact was made for whatever reason um the indian civilization ended up in learning from that contact and incorporating the solar system and the Western system just didn't really feel like taking this lunar thing back on. Like it, it didn't, you didn't leave India with that. Um, did, did, you know, there was no reintroduction of a lunar uh, astrological system into the West at that time. So that's basically what I attribute a lot of these differences to, because um, they seem more like de devolutions or degenerations from a more comprehensive whole, which is, seems to be represented in Jodish, then they represent disagreements on an equal plane. Um, another major difference is Mars. So Mars is still a bringer of war. He's still the, um, this sort of uh, harbinger of violence, um, still associated with vehicles, fuels, um, architecture specifically in its design and construction um so mars has all these associations but mars in the west is largely seen as not you know it deals with rage and anger and passion these really fiery emotions but it's not really seen as the lord of emotion in general and in all actuality that's precisely what it is the moon is not really where emotion comes from in the chart. Mars tells us about emotion. And we see that in Martian people, people who are Mars dominant are emotional. They don't just feel the emotions that we associate with Mars typically. They are just generally emotional, period. They experience everything in extremes. So I'll reluctantly admit that about myself yeah. as uh, a Mars dominant person. I also yeah. um, reluctantly allowed you to uh, be the only person to call me a Martian and get away on skate. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, anyway, that's it. Yeah, um, it is really interesting that uh, that these qualities uh, do manifest themselves time and time again in. Uh, in different people and people of all natures and I've seen your ability to uh, predict a person's planetary dominance just by their looks or by their actions or by uh, 
have seen that ability grow more and more accurate in the past months and years. Um, so, yeah, it can be learned very easily too. That's the thing about it. It doesn't even, I, you know, it doesn't even take that long to figure out what to look for. There's there's a whole bunch of like subtypes that you can figure uh, yeah, out pretty quickly. Yeah, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Uh, I just started laughing at that oh, um, okay. and vampire meme that I sent you yesterday. <laughs> um, no, I found a picture of a, a bunch of different um, people who had played uh, vampires in cinema and someone had posted this somewhere on social media and without any uh uh, any aspect of astrology or Jodish in mind that I was looking at it. I was like, wow, all of these people have like a certain sort of facial quality. Like even the ones that are, you know, even the count or whatever, who is obviously a Muppet, like, and then, uh, or, you know, despite even race or gender, they all had particular certain qualities like uh, large eyes. And I guess while we're on the topic of Rahu, maybe we can take a moment to talk about the fact that um, in Jodish, they uh, recognize that uh, the moon has a southern and northern node, or essentially, from what I understand, the depending on what direction the northern and southern poles of the moon are pointed at the time of your birth it uh and which house they would appear in um they just they, they treat the northern and southern pole of the moon uh or rahu and k2 as separate planets essentially yeah so what they are is these points in the elliptic so you'll have the orbit of the moon as a whole right and there are these two points they're always 180 degrees apart and what they are are these very specific points in the elliptic which will align with the moon and the sun and the earth to produce a eclipse of either the moon or the sun so no matter what if there is an eclipse of the moon or the sun rahu or ketu are going to be in a very specific conjunction with either of those planets and so what ends up happening is is that what we're actually looking at is the vedic astronomer slash astrologer being acutely aware of the timing of eclipses and the these two points because they're on the elliptic of the moon also pass through the zodiac and so we're tracking where these two invisible points are at any given time right like and because they're always opposite one another they have this very profound relationship and connection with with each other like to have K2 in one place is to definitely have it Rahu in another. So they're constantly inform each other, right? And they have a very reciprocal uh, polar relationship with each other. 
And so those are the nodes. Now the nodes are recognized in Western, but not um, entirely. So not all Western astrologers recognize the nodes. Um, those that do don't place as much significance on the on them, and the ones that do place significance on them are so few. It's it's really not something that's done in Western astrology, um, and it's overshadowed by a lot of other really weird kind of obscure um, astrological phenomena, like or like um points in the elliptic that they like to fool around with. They, they talk about like Lilith, dark moon and all these other weird kind of like um, placements or like little, like mathematical points in the orbit of the moon in the Western system that they track and pay attention to. All of which are essentially um, these fabrications that have kind of cropped up over the last century. They're, nothing about them is ancient or informed by any kind of tradition. They just sort of exist as like these um, these flights of fancy by modern Western astrologers. So because of that, because there's so much crap kind of thrown in, the, the, the these two shadow planets, which is actually what they're called in the Vedic tradition, they're called Chaya Graha, Chaya means shadow. These two shadow planets that are legitimate do have a history of significance and do produce very noticeable astronomic effects that we experience on earth like we, we you know you can see um, a solar eclipse a lunar eclipse right that's not like something you have to imagine it, it's very real and so it's something that and this also proves by the way that the vedic tradition and the vedic people knew for a fact that the sun and the moon had physical bodies out in space and that the earth produced a shadow that could eclipse, that could block out the moon. They didn't, like they knew that because if they didn't, they, there, there'd be no Rahu Ketu. There'd be nothing to track. Like what would they, why would they believe that those things were causing eclipses? So they are aware of the actual physical situation in our solar system, right? Um, and they knew that it had a direct reflection in the mythological world right so they they were not these sort of superstitious people who thought that like the moon or the sun was being physically devoured they understood that this was this devouring was taking place on a subtle plane on a more metaphysical plane but that it um it was not physically occurring which is something that's very widely said is that all these ancient cultures um believe that a monster regularly physically ate the sun and the moon um and that's just not just it's, it's not true if, at least for the vedic people i mean i don't want to speak for every single civilization at all points in time but we know that for a very long time much longer in fact than in the west at least for certain periods of of not that um you know ancient history they had a much more um, uh, accurate, scientifically speaking, in, in, in the Western sense, picture of the cosmos than we have in the West for quite some time. Like, I mean, they've never believed that the earth was flat. You know what I mean? They, they did not believe that um, 
you know, eclipses were genuine points of um, danger that could not, that could potentially fail or not be recovered from, like, or th th they understood that they had a cyclical nature and they tracked it very accurately. Um, Jodish can predict, predicts eclipses precisely. It's not an approximation thing. Like they, the, 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 and these, this math has been written down and used for thousands of years. In fact, we have written record of Rahu and Ketu by different names, but same thing being tracked before we have mention of any other planet in the text. So we know that this was very important to them. And that's not because they didn't recognize these planets yet. It's just that whatever texts would have mentioned this simply have not survived. We have to, we have to always remember that we're reading books that made it, you know, 3000 years or more. Um, and so the texts that, that have survived, for whatever reason, we only have the earliest written record we have of planets being talked about are actually these two shadow planets. And I would imagine that the survival of such a text is predicated on the fear of these planets. Rahu and Ketu are almost as, or just as much, or sometimes even more feared than Saturn, which is saying something because Saturn is called the great malefic for a reason. Shani, as he is called in India, is uh, a being which is greatly feared, greatly feared um, by everyone. Like he's, he humbles everyone. So it's, he, he, this is not someone you want to screw around with. Shani is intensely feared, but Rahu and Ketu sometimes more so, because unlike Shani, they are even more pitiless and they are chaotic. They represent forces and people and things that are outside civilization, beyond what is normal or predictable or understandable. They represent things that are actually kind of beyond understanding altogether, like mysteries and uh, illusions and um, uh, Maya itself. They're the stuff of illusion. Yeah. <laughs> A little visitor here. Yeah, uh, thinking that uh, it was going to be the the beasts in my room here that were causing trouble, but they're for the most part staying still. Oh yeah. Um, so much. yeah, we were talking before about how uh, out of the nine planets, um, they're often seen as. Um, there being these three triads where uh, one of the triads is an association between Saturn and Rahu and K2. Uh, do you want to maybe just touch on the yeah. nature of what they're getting at with those three triads and maybe so yeah so speculation on how so Saturn became or how Saturn got the so that particular uh, association or connection with the uh, lunar nodes? Yeah, so what it comes down to is that there, for one thing, there are lots of ways in which the planets are classified or grouped together, right? Uh, lots, like there's, there are many, 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 many opinions, systems, perspectives on how we should view the varying allegiances and um, cooperations and 
interactions between these deities, these planets. But um, Saturn, Rahu, and Ketu often come into company with one another because they're all deal with karma. They are all directly relate to karma, time, punishment, and kind of all the stuff that no one wants to deal with and no one likes and everyone would prefer didn't exist. So suffering, illusion, um, uh, punishment, karma, um, all these different things that we kind of experience that make life difficult. That's what these three planets kind of deal with. Saturn um, is more so the physical aspect of this. It does have a mental and spiritual, you know, dimension to its effects, but it primarily acts in the physical plane and it exerts itself through death, injury, bereavement, loss of property and wealth, um, just bad luck. Like it basically what it does is it Saturn aims to upset, upset, upheave, frustrate, or otherwise um, compromise your material conditions so that you will, in the absence of wealth and, and external stimuli, in that sense, turn inward and develop yourself spiritually. So Saturn doesn't communicate in any other way. Saturn tells you what it wants by hurting you and hoping that you learn the lesson. And Saturn doesn't even really care about your present incarnation either. Saturn's not here to help you. It's here to help your eternal soul. So if the lesson is death, it will impart that lesson without second thought, without hesitation. Saturn will just outright kill someone to teach them something because the soul is eternal the lesson will live on past the present incarnation. So Saturn exerts itself upon humankind inexorably without mercy and yet also with immeasurable love. Saturn is actually an ally of humankind because it is engaged in the project of pushing us towards our higher selves by denying us things, right? So it actually... Converse, this is the strange thing about its association with the nodes is the nodes are associated with illusions. Whereas Saturn's kind of the reality planet that shatters illusion. Um, it kind of breaks you out of um, cycles of um, egotism and pride and material achievement. It will just ruin that because it, it, what it wants you to do is focus on what's real which is the spirit, right? Like what, what is fundamental? And that's how it does that. So it is a humbler. That's what it does. It, it is here to humble you. Now, the nodes are a bit different. So once again, they deal with karma because that's what Saturn is doing too. It's punishing you according to the karmas that which, you, which you've accrued throughout your lifetimes. Um, Saturn is not just picking on you for no reason. Saturn says, no, no, no. Like, not, and this is not in the same sense either that you would think of in like a sort of like a Western Christian sense where like you commit sins A, B, or C, or D, and you get punishments that correspond to those sins. It, it's, it's more like, you have to think of it in terms of lessons, because what Saturn's doing is teaching you things. And so it's just as much about what you've done as what you need to do and need to learn. It's not necessarily a 
always a punishment. It's just a lesson that can only be learned through suffering. So Saturn is not going to just mess you up because you did something bad. Saturn's going to mess you up because it's, it's what will produce a positive effect. Ultimately it works towards ultimate good and it does so through gruesome and bleak means. That's the, really the best way to describe what it's up to. It has to be seen as having goodwill because if you do not perceive it that way, dealing with what it does to you is very difficult. People who begin to learn about astrology, they fear Saturn, they, they worry about Saturn, they um, kind of resent it. And that's the complete opposite of a productive way of dealing with it because that's not going to make anything any better. Um, you're refusing to learn a lesson and that really only stands to intensify the severity of the lesson. So we, you know, we always have to look at the things we're going through as being part of our growth. And I know that a lot of terrible things happen in the world, horrible, unspeakable things. And it's very easy to say that stuff and say, Oh, you know, this is for your own good. It's for the greater good or whatever. And then we see this horrible stuff in the news of these disasters and things like that. Um, and I wouldn't, I would never tell someone who was suffering or who was going through that or lost a loved one or something, you know, oh, don't worry. It's for the best. You know what I mean? That's, but like Saturn doesn't care about that. Saturn is so beyond that human concern because it doesn't see things in terms of your individual life. It sees you, all the lives that you're ever going to have throughout all of time. And it's like, what is the best thing for this person right now over a span of thousands of years, millennia, not just this little 80 year, 70 year, 40 year blip. You know what I mean? So it is, it's very hard to, even if you know this and I'm saying it and I can't get my head around it. Like, you know, I've lost, I lost a father, you know, almost a year ago and to try and grapple with it in that way that I'm describing now is very difficult um, to see it as this necessary thing and this lesson and this, you know, this opportunity for growth. It's a very hard, difficult, painful thing to take on or to even consider, but that is what it's about. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and you really have to humble yourself before it, before death, essentially. It's what, that's what Saturn is trying to teach you in, in a lot of ways. So that we have that in mind, right? And then Rahu and Ketu are operating on another level altogether. So Saturn is time, right? It's the passage of time. It is the experience of being limited by time, right? That's what causes all of our suffering is limitation and restriction. You know what I mean? The end of life, the, the loss of this. These are all things that constrict and exert pressure on the ego and push it down, right? Um, even the ego is a limitation of consciousness. Our body is a limitation. All these limitations, these are all Saturns. So that's time. Rahu and Ketu are the future and the past. So Rahu is the future. It's what's going to happen. It's about looking forward and um, novelty. K2 is nostalgia. It's backwards looking. It's the past. It's everything that isn't anymore. Right? And so you have these two currents 
sort of passing through this sort of Saturnian plane of time, right? Which is at once a limitation, which is experienced in the now, and a sort of overarching sort of structure of time, right? That is eternal. So Rahu is the future. And so Rahu exerts upon us a sort of vision of the future, but it's always a distortion because the future is indeterminate. So there's this imaginative kind of um, delirious quality to Rahu because it's always obsessed with what it doesn't have. It's always insatiable. It's just hunger. And that's actually because it, we can actually see in the mythology that it's the head of the dragon. And it's not just like this dragon's like a, is like a whole being. The tail and the head have been separated. Like the head's been cut off. If you look, if you look at the mythology, um, the birth of Rahu and Ketu are described as the beheading of a demon who stole the nectar of immortality from the gods and was killed or beheaded at the exact moment that he drank the first drop. So the, the body achieved immortality, but it was separated at that exact moment. So the head and the tail or the head and the body are immortal, but they're now separate. They're different things now. And so the head having no body is insatiable. It just experiences hunger and desire and it's ravenousness and it's very psychological and mental like it's it's very much about like processing information because it's a head everything you can think of with the human head what does that symbolize what does that mean that's rahu and what without a body so cannot satisfy itself there's something to satisfy there's something there k2 is the opposite it's always satisfied it's in fact disillusioned. It has no ego. It's headless. So aimless, purposeless, meaningless, detached from the world, satisfied with what it has, could actually probably do with less. Um, and it's associated with the past. It wants to go back. And it's also associated with lineages, ancestry, the blood, DNA, all these things we kind of think about when we think about what's below the head, like the sort of subconscious, unconscious parts of human um, life or human consciousness, right? Um, as an overarching thing. So in that way, I guess, <clears throat> Rahu and Ketu, where Saturn represents time in general, Rahu and Ketu sort of represent maybe progressive and regressive aspects of that or something like right. Rahu yes. is more like the forward reaching aspect of time, whereas K2 is backward reaching in nature or, or uh, progressive or, and receptive or regressive in that way. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And see what's happening here too is, and this is, this is the thing we have to really understand is that they're both racing towards the same thing in a way, the end of and beginning of time, like the void. So Rahu wants to just burn through history. He wants to just achieve everything that can possibly be achieved 
go experience every karma, accrue every karma, accrue every possible form and delineation and diversification and form that it can. It just wants to just like do it all, right? It's just ravenous for the end of time. And A2 is ravenous for the past. It wants to travel right back through every experience that's ever happened to the very beginning when there was nothing, which is where Rahu is headed. They're both kind of making their way back to each other. The end of the world is the reassembly of the dragon. That's basically what we're talking about is when the tail and the head find each other again, that is the end of time and manifestation. And this is actually why the nodes and Saturn, which is the time which they are traversing and who is himself associated with the end of all things. Um, that's why they're all three of them are associated with Shiva and the Maha Pralaya, the great dissolution and also the dance of creation and destruction. So they, they're actually involved in both processes, beginning and end, right? Um, and that's really like very key to understanding them and why they're so closely related. They all have a very direct relationship with Shiva. In fact, Rahu is often described as the heart of Shiva or dwelling in the heart of Shiva. And so uh, also um, Saturn has been known to have a strange association with the sun in yes. not only Jyotish, but in other uh, cultures as well, or in other s systems and mythologies. Uh, but it has a particularly interesting uh sort of relationship with the sun in Jyotish from what I understand in that it is seen as sort of uh, I'm trying not to say the 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 sun of the sun or something right like it's seen as this sort of uh, almost a, a shadow self of the sun or something like that or having this uh, karmatic relationship with it, but serving an entirely sort of different purpose or influencing an entirely different realm of experience. Yeah. So what they actually kind of act like is these sort of um, alpha and omega points almost or, or uh, positions. So the sun is the alpha, is the beginning, and it deals with the um the totality of creation and at the same time saturn is everything that limits that creation and um will ultimately bring it to an end and what the, the mythology that actually goes into their relationship though or rather i should say that describes it is that basically the sun is um a bit of a um a ladies man let's put it that way sun the sun is this sort of adulterous figure in the myths so he has this wife and 
she kind of finds it very difficult to be around him for long periods of time because he's so intense. Like he's just so bright and hot and overbearing, right? So she just needs a break every once in a while. And so what she ends up doing is she leaves behind her shadow, which looks like her, right? And she leaves behind her shadow and she, and she just goes, you know, just runs off to do, just do whatever, you know, just get away from him for a little bit. The son just basically goes and um, knocks up his wife's shadow. Like he, 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 he approaches and then, um, yeah, he, he copulates with the shadow of his wife. And the offspring is Shani, the, you know, Saturn. So what we're actually seeing here is we have the shadow of the sun. So if we're of the wife of the sun. So as I said before, the sun is not, and all the planets are not singular entities. They're um, actually kind of almost in a way, they're both one and two things at the same time. They're all a singular thing. And they're all also a husband and wife kind of a pair or a Lord and consort kind of pair, right? They're all like a, like a Shakti and a, um, a deific, right? Like, so what you have here is, is that the power, the Shakti of the sun cast a shadow and the sun copulated with this. So what we're actually really talking about is the sun basically breathing life into its own shadow and create and making of its shadow something new, something up opposing to and itself, right? So it, describing its absence, you know, almost in a way. And so what Saturn represents then is this, all the, the places where there is no light. It is this absence of lights, the end of light. And that's actually, curiously enough, why um, we can't, well, I shouldn't say why, but it, it just so happens that with the naked eye, you can't see any further than Saturn in our solar system. The very limit, the horizon of our knowledge of the solar system with the naked eye is demarcated by Saturn's position. There is no planet beyond Saturn that can be seen with the naked eye. And so Saturn represents the limit of human knowledge, of consciousness, of everything. Anything beyond Saturn transcends human limitations, cosmic laws, all manner of things, right? So what we're actually talking about here is the sun is the center and the perimeter, the absolute limit is Saturn, right? And curiously enough, this sort of thing I'm describing is actually pictorialized quite perfectly in the symbol of the sun. The sun is a circle with a dot in the middle. So you're basically looking at the same thing again. It's almost to say that the sun could not have come about any other way, could not exist any other way. It, it, the sun could only exist in opposition to Saturn, its child. You have the center, the sun, and its perimeter, Saturn that is the symbol of the sun, mm -hmm. right? So 
the whole thing is encapsulated in that image. It necessitates this other thing to kind of reify that border, right? And make that something other than itself. So that's really what we're looking at, right? Is we have this sort of consciousness, the soul, and then the limitations within it, which exists, right? And that's based on the relationship between Saturn and the sun. And curiously enough, this sort of son of the sun concept, um, I think a lot of people might find that kind of reminiscent of the concept of the son of God or Christ, who's usually associated with the sun, but is this um, figure which actually experiences the most bleak and harrowing material experiences imaginable. Um, and it's actually the, the harrowing of Christ, the torture of Christ on the cross, all these things are actually Saturnian things. That's a Saturnian story experience figure. And if we look at films which depict Christ, not in any situation, but specifically that deal with the harrowing, the torture, and the crucifixion and the betrayal of Christ, all these things, these material deprivations and um, injuries and humiliations, all these things. Anyone who plays that character almost every single time is played by a man who has a Saturnian um, nakshatra, either rule, um, you know, for their sun or moon placement. So the moon or the sun are passing through and are within a Saturn ruled nakshatra of which there is only three, same with every planet um, at the time of their birth. And so it's very consistent. And it seems to me to be a direct um, reference to and sort of synchronicity with this theme we're talking about of the sun projecting itself into matter to experience its own creation as something other than itself. This sort of like um, multiplication or like this sort of one becoming the many kind of thing. Uh, it's almost like a, you know, it's a, it's a creation myth, essentially. Like, you know, we're talking about the, the, the opposite ends of a creation myth. Um, so you have Alpha and Omega, right? Omega, the last man, Saturn. Um, and you also see Saturn playing, in, or should I say Saturn men playing all these figures uh, who are in varying stages of poverty and destitution and physical and material extremity and pain and suffering in film, television, um, people write, who are Saturnian write books about this. Um, in general, poverty and homelessness, all these things are Saturnian conditions, slavery. Uh, in fact, the entire working and labor class and in antiquity and in some parts of the world today, slavery, um, all these things are ruled over by Saturn. And so Saturn represents the oppressed classes of society, that which are furthest from the light of prosperity, the sun, right? That's how that's kind of the juxtaposition. And um, because of that, you'll actually see um, class 
um, struggle or class-oriented like worker-based movements adopt a lot of Saturnian imagery, even though they're often professed atheists, like the communist um, revolution, the, the, uh, like, and, and the, its resultant first nation, the Soviet um, USSR, its symbol is literally a sickle and hammer, which if inverted is almost identical to the astrological symbol for Saturn. That's that's used in in, West, in Western and East and, and now in retroactively Eastern astrology, the symbol of Saturn is a sickle, um, hanging with a with a cross section. So that's essentially what we're talking about. Is like a there, there there is just this profound relationship between Saturn and the destitute, essentially, and then the Sun over and over again is associated with royalty, aristocracy, regality, mastery, um, individuals who are in positions of authority and power or simply um, over control of their own lives and selves and emotions. They're wholly um, sort of complete men who want for nothing, don't care for uh, accumulation or um, any kind of material gain or pleasure they are kind of almost like a king in their own right, even if they don't have no kingdom. Like they're very self-reliant, independent people. Um, and so you have these two kinds of opposites. Uh, but yeah, so to, to try and rein this back in um, to these, to the triads we we're mentioning earlier, there are two other triads, obviously. So we had this karmic kind of corner right, of the, of the, uh, the, the Navagraha um, world, right? But then you have these, this sort of psychosexual um, triad, which is Mars, Venus, and Mercury. So Mars is may, the male libido. It's lust, um, specifically lust for result. It also kind of deals with insatiability in the manner that Rahu does, but in a different way. It's about ambition. And it's about wanting what you don't have and being motivated to do something about it. So Mars is the energy that allows things to happen. The fuel for change, reconstruction, all these different things that happen. And what moves the body, what moves um, the earth, all these things that take place that require energy, um, we're talking about having a relationship with Mars. Um, and as a result, it is also kind of very strongly uh, associated with lust and with striving for um, objects of desire. And so it is this penetrating, exacting, projecting um, kind of a force and then you have Venus, which is fertile um, and it doesn't so much lust for things as it is lusted for. Now, when you, we get into how this actually affects real people, Venusian men, for example, are actually more like what you probably imagine a Mars man to be like, quite ravenous, sexual appetite, sexually aggressive, um, very forceful, um, sort of penetrating kind of people, right? But 
for the purposes of understanding the planet more generally, Venus is this sort of um, very fertile, bountiful thing that is desired. And so, and it deals with creativity, fertility, birth, um, all these sort of processes we associate with the female body and with um, the creative process in general. And just, just, it just generally deals with procreation. So these two planets, Mars and Venus, kind of have this um, very intimate, and honestly, once you start breaking down their qualities and how they work with each other, very confusing relationship because they almost have element, elements of each other within one another. So Venus is outwardly soft, luscious, desirable, um, warm, welcoming, but is internally quite acidic, fierce, pitiless, um, almost kind of fiery. And then Mars, outwardly aggressive, outwardly fierce, harsh, severe, intense, but inwardly quite tender, uh, emotional, receptive even, and um, quite sensitive, mushy. And so the two- You can just keep going for a second. There's just someone knocked at my door apparently, but uh, carry on. But they have, so they have this relationship where they're kind of always kind of playing off each other in that way. Um, and as soon as you feel like you've nailed their exact dynamic, you can always go another level down and find another element within that sort of hidden realm you've already discovered, like that inner mushiness of, of Mars has an even deeper level of severity and harshness. And that inner severity and harshness of Venus has an even deeper level, which is more like the exterior of Venus, which is mushy, sensitive, um, inviting. And it just keeps on going, going further and further down like a rabbit hole. And they just sort of infinitely intertwine and complement each other in that way. Um, and then you have Mercury. And Mercury is hermaphroditic. So it possesses qualities of both uh, forms of gendered consciousness. It does not so much represent the negation of gendered consciousness as it represents this midway point between them, the sort of reflection in the middle. And what's actually kind of happening here is that Mercury is about the communication between these two things. So these two forces that are constantly trying to interact with each other, the actual communication that takes place between them is Mercury, which, which is what Mercury is, is language, communication, the, vo the voice. It's about um, movement between states and worlds, realities, modalities, paradigms, states of knowledge and understanding. Um, and Mercury is also reflexive. It tends to take on the qualities of things with what, to which it is, it is exposed. So um, when Mercury is uh, conjunct a planet, for example, it tends to absorb and really take on its qualities. It doesn't really exert its influence on things, so to speak, in that way. It, it basically just renders these things um, in sort of intellectual, logical, rationalizing kind of way, but it doesn't actually really change their nature in the way that it is changed. 
So it's kind of this intermediary between Mars and Venus. And then you have the third triad, which is the Sun, the Moon, and Jupiter. Now, Jupiter kind of seems like an odd one out here, but there's a reason why it's, in, it's sort of associated with these other two planets. So the Moon and the Sun have a very peculiar relationship as well. Um, the Moon is consciousness itself. It is the experience of, um, of life. It, 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 it's the stage upon which all these things are happening. Everything we've described, that is experienced directly through as a living being. And that event of experiencing, of it, experiencing it is represented by the moon. The moon is experience itself. It's your perspective. It's literally the thing through which everything is apprehended and um, received. And in that, in that same sense, the moon is essentially a blank canvas upon which things are painted. And so where the moon sits in the zodiac strongly, very strongly influences its nature. Um, and it takes on the qualities of signs that it's in very, very strongly. It, it, it does not exert influence on them at all. It's the other way around. And same thing with the sun. So if the sun is the self and the moon is our phenomenal consciousness, then their interplay is about this sort of mind-body problem or this sort of idea of the self-image and the self being the same thing and yet separate things. And it's about this reconciliation of human consciousness with um, eternal or universal or transcendental consciousness represented and sort of heralded and um, manifested here as the sun. The sun represents that transcendental consciousness in our manifest and limited reality. So the moon is essentially kind of playing with the light of the sun all the time. And so the cycles of the moon through which it sort of seems to be to die and be reborn and it takes on the light of the sun and then it loses it. These are all sort of these sort of waxing waning periods of flux throughout our lives where we you know, one day we feel one way, one day we feel the next. We're kind of always moving through different um, perspectives and understandings. And sometimes we feel like we know everything. And sometimes we feel like we know nothing at all. This, this, this is this relationship between the sun and the moon. Your chart really hinges on the, the moon always trying to understand the sun. You're trying to understand yourself. You're exploring yourself. Um, and you're doing that through all the, these sort of cycles that occur throughout your life. The sun, on the other hand, is the eternal unchanging aspects of your personality. They are the things about you that do not change. And I don't mean like things that you like or things that you're attracted to or even necessarily um, personality traits that seem relatively stable. I'm talking about deep archetypal parts of your being yourself that you're probably not even fully aware of. That's really what the sun is getting at and your chart. And so the sun, the reason why it is so um, representative of different 
qualities that, uh, of signs that it passes through in the chart is not because the sun is so easily influenced, but because the sun contains within it absolutely everything. And so when it passes through a sign, it's resonating with the sign. It's, it's got that in there, so it's able to bring it out. It's not being influenced by the sign. It is chiming in with it. Um, it's working with it. There, it is not like the moon where it's being impinged upon. So this is why we look at the moon in Jodish when we're trying to figure out what someone's personality is because the moon is the thing that's definitely so powerfully being influenced by the sign that it's in, in a way that the sun is not. The sun brings forth these other qualities. And so like, you know, every person is after a fashion solar, we all have a sense of self, right? We all have some concept of self and ego and self-perception and selfhood, right? That's what the sun's always doing that. No matter where it's at, it's producing that. It's eternal. But the sign that it's in, it will resonate with that and it will temper and um, forge this ego out of that. And this ego is experienced by the moon. So that's the relationship. So where does Jupiter fit into that? Well, Jupiter is, as it so happens, the, the guru. It is the teacher. And it, essentially what it does is, is it's trying to help the moon get there. Um, it's, it's at its role is to uh, assist the moon in this process whereby it learns that it is in fact the sun the whole time, that they are, they are one thing. Um, and Jupiter do does this not by teaching it anything really specifically, but by rewarding it for learning, by providing a safe and bountiful environment within which to do this and materially comfortable realm within which to do this. Because if Saturn was in, wholly in charge, um, everything would be inhospitable there would be no way to achieve comfort or life at all. If Jupiter had its way, there would be, everything would just be a huge kind of uh, almost hedonistic nightmare. Every desire would be immediately fulfilled, but you'd, you'd have everything, right? There would be no limit to what you could have. And so if you have everything, you have nothing, right? So Saturn and Jupiter kind of work together to produce the conditions that allow us to live. And when one gets the upper hand, uh, that's when that's actually what determines your position in society, your position in, um, in terms of like wealth, status, all these different things, right? And like even like what will physically happen to you in terms of disease, uh, injury, um, unfortunate events, or, you know, winning the lottery, anything like that. So, there, there is an, there's a very profound relationship between those two planets as well. But uh, that's Jupiter's sort of um, role in that triad. So here's the other thing though as well is that Jupiter and the moon have a peculiar history in the, in the mythology. So the moon is a kind of a, um, a rogue or a wastrel or like a near-do-well who kind of just sort of likes to wander around and experience things in the myths. He's just kind of a sort of a sensual hedonistic kind of a figure. 
and um, he kind of just, uh, yeah, he just wanders through um, all these different stories, Man, more or less just sort of having a good time, uh, drinking and gambling or just doing whatever he feels like. And uh, one of the things he really likes to do is sleep with other people's wives. And uh, in one of these myths, the moon takes uh, absconds with Jupiter's wife, Tara. And so, and then they have a child and that child is booed uh, Mercury. So the Jupiter and the, and the moon in a way are the parents of Mercury because Tara is not a separate entity from Jupiter. Tara is the feminine reflex of Jupiter. So in actuality, Jupiter and the moon create Mercury. Hmm. And this gives birth to this sort of, to the, to, to the intellect. So moon is the raw experience of things. And Jupiter deals with wisdom and philosophy, um, religion. And when they you bring these two things together, this sort of, systematization of reality occurs. That's what Mercury deals with as well, is organizing things into categories, naming them, which is essentially what that is. When we name, we categorize. When we, you know, and, and Mercury deals with magic in that way, because it, it deals with putting names to things is not just giving them power, it's giving you power over them. When we create systems of knowledge and category and organization, we're actually in a way creating reality where we're working directly with the um, manipulation of information. And if we're going to follow through on this theory of, uh, of consciousness, which is encapsulated within systems like this and in Eastern philosophy, we can basically reduce consciousness and reality to symbolism, information, the word, whatever you want to call it. So Mercury really ties very strongly to this idea of magic and of using words to manipulate reality. And in fact, um, you'll notice that in a lot of Western esoteric traditions, the tarot trump, the magician, is often associated with Mercury and for good reason. That's precisely what's going on there. Um, so that's, yeah, so that's actually all nine planets right there. We basically covered in the process of just talking about these triads, but like, um, yeah. So the, these, once again, like, I don't want to say it's arbitrary, but like these are only three possible ways or there's only one possible way of looking at um, the planets as in, in groups and kind of systematizing them in that way. And it can be really helpful for understanding how they work but you can rearrange them in a lot of different ways and still get very meaningful um, sort of insights from juxtaposing a few planets together, even just two planets, see what their relationship is with each other. And you can get a lot of information out of that. But yeah, like it's, you know, and it's one of those things you can just kind of talk about forever. It's sort of a, there's this an endless amount of information and, um, and mythology and symbolism that you can kind of pick apart and start talking about what all these things do and how they they act upon you. Um, yeah, it is really interesting, and maybe perhaps 
in the future we could uh sort of break that down in some different episodes where we could maybe you know take uh an episode where we talk about sort of the more uh physical aspects or aspects of physiognomy and how they yeah. uh show themselves through the lens of Jodish and then also maybe uh, sometime we could talk about um, uh, a lot of the research that you've done on sort of characters in whether it's film or myth or fiction or whatever it is and how it seems that uh, characters or um, actors will often have these uh, very accurate uh, sort of placements that make them sort of, or that just, I don't want to say that the placement makes them the perfect uh, person to play the character, but that it, it shows that the, uh, perhaps the person who had, who is choosing the, or casting certain people in certain roles that they, it seems that time and time again that they pick people who uh, would have a typical <clears throat> association that would be perfect for said characters, such as uh, you've mentioned previously, uh, Saturnian characters tending to have like a more uh, malicious sort of nature, whereas, um, you know, uh, uh, what have you, or uh, a Jupiterian or Martian character would have other certain qualities. So perhaps in the future we can take a little more time and pick those things apart. Yeah, and, um, and it gets even crazier too because you even have um, examples of all these historical figures who are played in film by people with either the same signs or at the very least the same planetary dominance, and that happens a lot mm. yeah um, i remember you mentioning that before and that does seem like something that would be uh a really good indicator of the accuracy of the system or something right if you can take say alexander the great who we were talking about earlier and then someone who would play alexander the great and then it's like oh what do you know they both have x yeah. Nakshatra in their or their son in X Nakshatra or something to that effect that would a really a really fun example of that I always like is uh, the guy who plays Marcus Aurelius in Gladiator. Um, it just so happens that we know the sun sign of Marcus Aurelius. Uh, he was uh, he had sun in Uttara Ashada, which is a sun ruled Nakshatra, which is in the final degrees of or sorry the first degrees of capricorn and we also happen to know that the actor himself i believe it's yeah, i believe it's moon has the moon in utara ashada so they both have the same sun ruled nakshatra um and i seriously doubt that ridley scott was aware of that so you know what i mean and then you have mozart um in the movie amadeus um, Tom Hulse, I believe that's how his name is pronounced, and um, Mozart are both Jesta Moon. Um, like this just goes on and on. Even even like more recent figures that are still alive, like Donald Trump, is very very frequently impersonated and lampooned by many you know, various actors: Johnny Depp, Alec Baldwin. Um, 
I'm trying to remember someone else who did a good, a good impression of him. Like, you know, they get all dressed up and everything for it. But I can't. I, oh, yeah. Stephen Colbert does it in an animated show. All three of those people share a sign and a dominant. Actually, sign, straight up share signs with or dominance with Donald Trump. So, you know what I mean? They, it's not a coincidence that they happen to be good at doing this impression and uh, were attracted to the idea of doing it and volunteered to do it and filmed doing it. And like, it's, it gets really wacky, but like, uh, I'll just show you um, very briefly what I'm working on right now uh, on and off is this page, every line is an example of a real, real life figure being portrayed by a person in a film with the same sign or dominant. And these are all confirmed birth times or the sun sign is confirmed. And there's like, these are all like 100% like, yes, like they're not, none of these here are based on like, oh, they, if, if the moon was there when they were born, but I don't know that I'm birthed and none of that, like these are all confirmed. And it just goes on and on and on. I'm not even oh done. My Lord. I'm not even close to done. I have like a huge, fucking wiki open um of just every biographical film ever that is in on wikipedia and i'm just going through all of them and just charting everybody it, just it takes forever but i'm getting you know what i mean and it's that kind of data entry that kind of slows down this stuff it takes forever to do this like you know what i mean I, I wish i had money to hire people to just do charts and they can just give me the information but you know and you see it in political movements. You can, you can like chart people in a political movement and they'll all share things. You can chart people who are into a certain kind of music, who are- Sorry you know, for all the dogs, band. Annette just dropped uh, oh, Norton right. off. So there's like straight up dog fight happening just on the other side of the lap out there. Of course. You can chart families. Yeah, they'll share signs. You can chart just like, like any group of people you can think of that would have a reason to be similar to one another and you can chart them and you will get results, you know, and it's so consistent. You'll always find something. It'll just blow your mind. Like it's, and it's so easy and I don't have to make any claims that can't back up because I, these is all publicly available information. You can take a Jodish calculator, which is easy to find online you can go on to astrodatabank.com and you can just have this huge database of birth times and each of which by the way is rated according to likelihood of accuracy whether or not there was a birth certificate you know involved in getting the time whatever like you can get everything you need to confirm what i will tell you or any other person does this kind of research and you can easily do it yourself and get the same results and, you know, at the end of the day, you do the math, you're just going to be like, oh, wow, look at that. Like, you know, you can't argue with it. There's nothing to, there's nothing to say. It just is. It's real. Like, that's, that's the thing I want everyone to know is that you can extrapolate from this very simple, fun little exercise slash hobby, whatever you want to call it, a really robust, robust example of a causal causality of a reality where, you know, 
these things are not imaginary. Like I can, I, I'm, I, I kind of feel like this is my way to say that God is real. Like, you know what I mean? If you want to prove that there is a divine reality, you can just do this. You can just like start, you know, charting random Hollywood weirdos or whatever, and you'll just get you'll 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 be able to find out that that's that's all just real. That's, that's basically what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah. I think that a lot of people out there who really kind of need that in a way right now. Like it's very easy to kind of convince yourself that you know you're losing your mind or that there's no, there's no magic in the world and everything is kind of like this mundane, meaningless, you know, thing. And there's, you know what I mean? Like, wouldn't it be so great if you could just find something that could really just show you that that's not true, that there actually is something to all this. There is something going on. And like, there is, that this is a thing you can do. You can go and you can look this up. You can find it. Um, if you don't want to do the work, you can follow me on um, Facebook on Iron Age Jodish, and you can um, pay attention to this man's blog, and you'll see my posts and lots of other great stuff there. Or you can even, um, once I have it up, start checking out my YouTube channel, which I'm probably going to try and get up and running within the next week or so. Actually, start doing videos of my own on the subject because writing them out can be tedious at times, um, especially when it's just like a, you know, and it, uh, that's a whole other thing. But the point is, is that, you know, th you have no excuse anymore to not believe. You, you just have to pay attention and like this stuff will take you there. Like, you know, you don't have, it doesn't have to be, you know, a big meaningless existentialist mess. And uh, Paul, Paul, Paul Sartre can like fuck off basically. That's what I'm, <laughs> I'm yeah, John Paul Sartre. Yeah, like you can fuck off. Um, Paul Sartre. <laughs> well, you put it that way. Yeah. Um, um, but and that is something that I did really love about Jotish is that it does give you a sort of uh, pretty hard to argue with. Uh, time and time again, just set of examples of. Uh, I won't even bother getting into uh, examples here again, but just uh, time and time again, you show show me like, look at all of these uh, freaks of a certain planetary yeah. uh, placement, and they just also happen to have these particular physical features. Yeah, or I they've mean, they've been placed I'm... in this particular role, or they have like these particular uh, <clears throat> mental aspects or per uh, aspects to their personality, and. Um, you know, I, it's, uh, I haven't really had any, I'm finding it hard to find examples of it not really working out, right? Like the system yeah, seems to time and time again, uh, just be incredibly accurate. Well, my, my favorite trick right now is, because I'll be honest, some some planetary dominants are a little harder to spot or they'll have subtypes that are kind of um you don't see in film because they're because they're not attractive you know what i mean so you don't see them in films you don't really know what you're looking at but there's a couple of subtypes that are super easy to learn how to spot and the easiest one is not every k2 person or girl will have this but almost every girl with these features will be k2 dominant or have it 
as either their sun, moon, or ascendant placement. Bangs, dark hair, large sleepy eyes, and pale skin. Those things together is K2 over and over. I have done this so many times. I've like, I, I've walked into, I walked into a little new age kind of shop or whatever to buy some incense one time. And like the woman there happens to know I'm in, in all this astrology stuff. So I was talking to her about it and there was a, a friend of hers, a customer walked in and I said, and I, so I turned to her and said, so for example, this woman here is clearly K2. And like, look at her, like, you know what I mean? She's got the eyes, bangs, pale, all these, all these things. That is a K2 woman. And so she was like, obviously kind of confused or whatever. And so we got her birth information, charted her, and she was. She had sun in Ashwini, which is a K2 ruled sign in Aries. So that's exactly what happened. Um, and I did it um, actually with uh, with another gentleman when I I did a podcast appearance a little while ago on a show called The Bog, and one of the hosts I ended up pulling the same trick um, where I basically he just told me what his girlfriend's birthday was. I didn't know her name or anything. I wouldn't be able to look her up online, and I just went on a limb and I just described her appearance to him. I said, this is what she looks like, you know? And it just so happens that's exactly, he was just like, that's exactly what she looks like. And he sent me this picture and it's what I described, bangs, eyes, all the whole thing. And uh, he was so impressed within 20 minutes, he invited me onto his show. So that's, that's what we're dealing with here. This, it's like a very potent, highly predictive system. And it's based in, observation, evidence, and all, all these scientific methods that we're very familiar with in the West, but we're cross-referencing it with metaphysics, we're cross-referencing with mythology, symbolism, comparative mythology, everything else under the sun. Like I'm telling you right now, like it, it, it'll, it'll just blow your mind. Like you, 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 could, you could spend untold hours just finding stuff like this and you'll just never get tired of it because you're just going to keep on finding these mind-blowing coincidences. It's just relentless. Okay, um, I'm trying to think if there's anything that we haven't really covered in uh, relation to the Navagrahas uh, and just the... Um, sort of establishing a bit of an introductory uh, understanding of Jodish before we uh, go on to different topics in future videos. Um, we did sort of end up uh, covering the nine individual planets uh, at a pretty decent length. Um, Perhaps we could look into seeing if there was any sort of particularly a particular planetary placement that uh, led to all of the disturbances uh, between the dogs and the mailman showing up with uh, long lost Amazon packages. Um, anyway, uh, <clears throat> yeah, my friend just uh, dropped her dog off. She just had a bit of an emergency and messaged me halfway through the podcast. Was like, I'm dropping Norton off, and so. They seem to have calmed down a little bit now, but there is uh, some 
some high dog act dog fight activity there for a couple of minutes. They, uh, they seem to have chilled out a little bit. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to cover in relation to the planets or the Navgrahas or just um, as far as an introduction to Jyotish in general? I think that we sort of covered uh, most yeah. of the bases. I had a few notes and things and that <laughs> I took over the last few days of our conversations. And I think that we covered the, the main things. Um, I can't readily think of anything that wouldn't honestly take up an immense amount of time or just end up being another episode. I mean, if we go any further, we're basically getting into signs, conjunctions, um, aspects, house placements, what the houses are, you know, um, what that even means, like all that stuff. Like that's, we're going to really open up like a lot of different rabbit holes there. So I think we probably, we pretty much covered all the bases that can be covered without really opening up too much else that we can't really, I think reasonably tie off. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so then maybe perhaps uh, in the next week or so we can get together again and start talking about um, the Rashis. Would that be a good uh, yeah. subject to move on to next? And um, so uh, for now, um, I'm going to be posting uh, our first uh, guest blog article uh, by Mr. Neil John today, uh, which is um, the first in our series, Mysteries of Jodish, and will be appearing on the dharmawarrior.net blog. So uh, that will <clears throat> be appearing today along with this video on YouTube. Um, and there will be a uh, audio version of the podcast as well, uh, available, uh, via different, uh, platforms. Um, you can go to anchor FM, anchor.fm slash Dharma warrior. Uh, and you, you can find a list of the different platforms that you can find the podcast on there. It will also be listed on my, uh, Facebook and, uh, just on the Dharma warrior.net website. Um, you can find Neil John online. Um, I guess for now, the easiest place to find you is on Facebook, just as Iron Age Geodish. Uh, I will post uh, links in the description on the, the video and for the podcast here. Uh, for now, anybody who's watching on YouTube, uh, I would encourage you to uh, hit the like button or to subscribe to our channel. And... Uh, <clears throat> for now i guess we'll just uh wrap it up and we will see you again in uh, the coming days with uh the next installment of the mysteries of jyotish series uh which will be focusing on the zodiacal signs of the rashis and i would like to uh thank mr neil john for uh being here with us today and i feel like we uh covered a lot of ground but uh it was a good introduction to uh the planets in jodish and uh we will pick it up from there again soon so thank you very much and uh, yeah. um 
All right, yeah, and th th you're, you're welcome. And thank you so much for having me. I um, really appreciate it. And, um, you know, I'm really happy we can like support each other. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to doing more of the more of the series, more installments, and I'll see you soon. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's been great. And um, I will uh, be in touch and we will uh, keep working together to bring more of the wisdom of the mysteries of Jyotish to the masses together. So thank you, Mr. Neil John, and uh, we will see you all again soon. All right. Have a good one, man. You too. Bye-bye.